So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Justin Moon. He is a developer and an educator, and he hosts Build a Bootcamp, where he teaches people how to code on Bitcoin and build applications on Bitcoin. And we get into all types of conversations, including ways that people can get involved with Bitcoin um, so many different options. We talk about ways that people are building and what kind of options are available there. And then we get into security of Bitcoin. We talk about Bitcoin wallets, uh, Bitcoin security, Bitcoin protocols. Um, what would be maybe the easiest way for beginners? And then what's more advanced ways as people want to grow their security? Um, I like what he said, that complexity is the enemy of security. And so we talk about that and so many other ways to protect your privacy. It was a really good conversation with Justin. So let's go ahead and just jump right into it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, I am joined by Justin Moon. He is a Bitcoin developer, an educator, and uh, I'm really excited to have him on the show. Welcome, Justin. Thanks for having me, Mark. So I met you in uh, Texas a few weeks ago at a Bitcoin conference, and you were giving a talk about uh, wallets and security and things like that. A really good talk, by the way. I appreciated that. Why don't you just give us a little background on, um, you know, who you are, what you've been doing, and, and what you're doing in the space right now? So I'm a, a programmer by trade. I learned uh, well, during college. I didn't actually study it in school, but I was so bored in school that I just picked it up on the side because it was fun. Uh, and so I've been doing that for like five, six years. And I got into Bitcoin maybe 18 months ago. Uh, and uh, when I actually understood that it, it was... Uh, it was a really good technical solution. I always thought it was, it, it, it was probably smoke and mirrors. But when I went and studied, it, I was like, Oh wow, this is quite interesting. Uh, even if it, you know, uh, just on a technical level, even if it doesn't uh, impact the world at all, it's like technically very interesting. So that kind of got me in there. And, uh, and yeah, so after about six months, I became frustrated with the, uh, difficulty of learning how Bitcoin works. Uh, you know, you're you're just like chasing down random blog posts and, uh, uh, there wasn't really like a, really many classes I could take to, to facilitate, to just speed up my learning. So I created a little thing called Biddle Bootcamp, which is like a six, six week or so uh, online Bitcoin programming bootcamp where uh, we do like very briefly, we, we do like three or four main things. We, we make like a little mini version of the Bitcoin network. Uh, we write it ourselves. So you can see how the, like mining and everything interacts with transactions and all this stuff, which is fun. And we do a little, uh, Programming with the real Bitcoin network, you know, connecting to all these peers, composing messages, reading messages, trying to do stuff like initial block download ourselves, which is kind of fun. And then we build a hardware wallet uh, at the end. So that's uh, my Biddle Bootcamp class. And uh, an interesting thing with uh, Biddle Bootcamp was that uh, a lot of the people who were interested in it were like really uh, Bitcoin people and they weren't very sophisticated programming wise. Uh, and this might apply to your audience. Uh, so uh, I ended up creating a little thing called Mooniversity, which is like a learn to code class uh, aimed at people who are interested in Bitcoin. So all the examples involve Bitcoin. So like when we're learning to do a loop, that's a common thing you do in, in, in programming uh, where you do something repeatedly. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to solve the question of how many times will the Bitcoin sub, uh, subsidy 
have, right? There's this happening every four years. So it's like a simple, basically an algebra problem. And you can do it with a, like a loop in programming to, you know, just divide it until it reaches zero and, and you count how many times you do that. Uh, so it's, it's like a fl- lot of fun little exercises like that. So I'm sort of one of these advocates for uh, trying to get people to understand uh, Bitcoin on a little more technical level. Uh, just because I think it's, it's very rewarding. It reduces the chances you lose your coins, which is extremely important. Uh, I think the best self-defense in Bitcoin is education. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, was it that meme going around? Like they should just learn to code <laughs> or something? Yeah, learn to code. I actually got suspended from Twitter for uh, saying learn to code as some journalist. Oh, uh, in the doghouse for 48 hours, I think. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's kind of a joke. And obviously it's not for everybody. I wouldn't like say, you know, like, you know, my friends, you know, talk to Safety Namus every once in a while, the guy who wrote the Bitcoin Standard, a great book. And like, I don't want, I don't think he should maybe learn to code. He's got his thing figured out, sure. you know, maybe it's not. So it's not like, my point is it's not for everyone, but I think, I think a lot of people should try it uh, because. Yeah. What, like, what I love about it is, um, you know, I, I love the space. We both love the space. Uh, I, I believe it's going to be one of the most, you know, one of the biggest technologies to really change things up. And so there's going to be all types of opportunities. And, and uh, if you want to get involved, I mean, maybe you want to do marketing around Bitcoin or write content around marketing, or maybe you want to code. And so there's a bunch of different areas that you can get in depending on what your, what your, uh, you know, interests are or whatever, but, and your background, but I'm curious. So like you're teaching people how to write code and then code on Bitcoin, but um, they're not actually changing bitcoin they're not working on bitcoin core they're working on is it like products that would be on bitcoin or working with bitcoin like stacking on it yeah so there's a distinction in uh bitcoin development uh there's a distinction between application development and protocol development right so the protocol is uh the set it's just like a set of rules right and uh, the bitcoin protocol is like an abstract set of rules Uh, And then there are different software programs that attempt to like execute and enforce these rules, right? And so the oldest one is, we call it Bitcoin Core or the Satoshi client. It's the thing that Satoshi made. uh, And it was really started out as really like a proof of concept, right? It's a kind of an ugly piece of code, sort of hacked to clearly hacked together by one person who was, you know, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't have the resources available to attempt such an ambitious project. And was just sort of, you know, continued to be nursed along for a few years until he could get uh, some external interest. But still, it's it's sort of like uh, it's like it's like sort of an ugly uh, program, I think, just because uh, it's very hard to change because any if, if you make a mistake, the network splits. So you know, the, the developers have to be very very conservative. And some other protocol uh, implementations are something like BTCD. This is a, a, a version of, of an implementation of the Bitcoin rules uh, created by Roast Beef. The, 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 or he was one of the people who made it. And he's the guy who makes the LND uh, Lightning Protocol implementation as well. Lightning Labs. He's the CTO of Lightning Labs. There's another one called LibBitcoin. There's a number of these uh, protocol rule implementations. And then there's application development, right? So that's like your Wasabi wallet or your Electrum wallet or your Trezor or uh, maybe like uh, BitMEX or BACT or any one of these exchanges or on-ramps. Mm-hmm. Also uh, like lending products, the financial basically, basically anything that interacts with Bitcoin. I mean, it's an application. Yeah, that so take, I takes guess we think of it kind of like, uh, like, the, like the iPhone and you have like your iOS uh, application, which is the core. And then you have all the apps that you can install on them that can do any number of things. 
Exactly. And the, but the big distinction there is that anyone can work. It's very hard to actually work on the iOS operating system. You got to go get a job at Google or at, at, at uh, Apple. Uh, but with Bitcoin, you, you can work on the uh, Bitcoin core project. And I've had a few students make small changes to it uh, because the code's there. And if you notice some bug, you can just kind of update it. And uh, eventually your change will get in if it's a good change, uh, hopefully. And so, so, yeah, that's the distinction is you have the people who are uh, working on the actual rules. Well, there's, there's sort of like three pieces. There's the people who work on the software that like executes the rules, the people that build applications on top of it. But then also like the one group that I didn't really mention is the researchers. They're the ones that think about how the rules should change, right? So SegWit, for example, was this uh, way that the rules changed. And uh, it took a ton of thought. And this is a change in the abstract rules of Bitcoin, not any piece of software that uh, executes those rules. So it's sort of like the three different pieces. And I, I focus more on the application development, but yeah. I think most, or I, I would say many people who get in, involved in Bitcoin probably start on the application side. Like, how, how can I play with Bitcoin, right? And as they get deeper, they might move towards more of a protocol developer and sort of the most advanced is a researcher where you try to think about everything holistically and improve the whole beast. Sure. But I think uh, to, for easy comparison's sake, I mean, a lot of people think about building apps for the iPhone or the Android, but they're not thinking yeah. about trying to build a new Android or go work with Android. They just want to make an app for it. Yeah. Um, but I guess it's a little bit unique. Bitcoin's a little bit unique in a sense where it's open source. So anybody could just build whatever they want on it versus like you said before, like the Android, iOS, those are not open source. So you can't just build anything, right? It has to be permissioned and within the- When it's, the other big difference that's so odd about Bitcoin is that it's not like the open source is not just that you can work on it, but it's so easy to copy and make a copycat, right? Like just trying to make a copycat of Android is like absurd. Because it's it's so hard to market it, right? But Bitcoin, you know, you make a uh, an altcoin and try to market it to people. It's it's very easy, and you just like light. Excuse me, Litecoin took forty five minutes to create, right? So it's <laughs> it's 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 one of the tough things about Bitcoin development is there's this huge incentive once people become sophisticated enough to work with it to go and copy it and compete with it, uh, which is the one I, I like your uh, point, but that's the one distinction is it's like you get it's just so easy to copy. Yeah. And then um, I've heard it, I've heard it said where, you know, because Bitcoin's open source and then you can build whatever applications you want on them. And then you could start building on top of like other applications. So a lot of times these other applications may be open source as well. And then it's almost like mm -hmm. stacking Lego. So then you can kind of combine other applications to make a new application kind of a thing. Yeah. I was just playing with a BTC pay server. That's the, uh, it's a project uh, it's like a, a merchant processor that is self-hosted. You can, uh, you know, for like 10, five, 10 bucks a month, you can run it and accept Bitcoin payments on your e-commerce store. So like for my classes, I, I accept payments in Bitcoin using this and you don't have to trust a third party, which is really nice. You actually hold the keys to the Bitcoin yourself and you run it on a computer that you control. So it's, it sort of like goes along with the ethos of Bitcoin to uh, do the verification yourself and not trust third parties. And within this BTC pay server uh, application, there's all these little apps. And so one of them was one to like export your, your invoices to QuickBooks, right? And so at this point, these are both free open source products, but it is, you're starting to see this sort of like stacking of, uh, I mean, it's, it, the BTC pay server has its own little app store kind of inside, which is, is pretty cool. Uh, and I think you're going to see a lot more of that, especially as, uh, you can, create, you can turn these little projects into businesses as Bitcoin becomes more popular.
Especially if the developers continue to build stuff open source, right? So BTC yep. Pay Server built it open source, which allows people to now start building on top of it. Um, I think, I guess, once people start trying to close it off and keep it proprietary, then maybe that slows things down. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can definitely see that. Like, I guess a company like Casa tends tends to. I guess they have it some 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 of it open source, but a lot, uh, quite a bit of it's uh, closed too. Uh, some some of these companies are trying to make it more uh, like a walled garden, uh, which I think is fine uh especially if it, it, it might be hard to like build on it but especially if you can audit the code uh like if if like as as a uh, bitcoin user you always want to demand open source not because you're going to go and read the code but just because you can sort of assume that a popular thing where the code is on the internet is going to have some people like justin over here who's going to go and try to see if there's something wrong with it and if there is tell everybody and so that, that, that's uh, the, the thing that's really powerful about open source is that uh, you can sort of, the more popular it is, you can assume more people are sort of looking at it and they're trying to like attack it and figure out ways to break it. So like, uh, that's a nice thing about the Trezor, the whole firmware, everything about it is, is pretty open source. And, you know, and it's been that way for about four years. So uh, as your, av your average non-technical user should find some comfort in that fact that a lot of these sort of like hacker types are competing with each other to break the Trezor and they struggle to. So that, yeah. that's a really nice thing, you know? Yeah. So that's a good segue. I wanted to jump into um, uh, talking about security. So you mentioned Casa and then obviously Trezor. Um, so at, at the Bitblock Boom conference, you were talking about security and different types of custody and wallets and whatnot. And I think you, you basically, I mean, I guess if you wanted to break it down into two big buckets, you have self custody, and then you have someone else holding custody. Uh, and then you have shades of that, like a Casa, where there's like maybe some shared st stuff. But you either have someone do it for you or you do it yourself, right? And then if you do it yourself, you have a couple different options. So what are your, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so uh, I guess the big distinction is uh, it's sort of about really owning Bitcoin versus having financial exposure to Bitcoin, right? So there's a number of ways to get uh, to own Bitcoin, you have to you have to have control over a, a secret number. Basically, it's a huge secret number, like eighty decimal places. And that having control over a cer certain secret number like that, it's so big, it you can't guess it. It would take the you know the age of the universe to to guess and check whether you your guess was correct. That's the security of a. That's that's what it means to really own Bitcoin is to have control over one of these secret numbers, and that's what a a Trezor's entire job is to safely generate, store, and interact with this big secret number, right? That's the cryptography and cryptocurrency. So, uh, so that's what it means to, to own Bitcoin is to, to, to control that number yourself. But it's scary because, uh, you know, if your software has a problem, it might try to steal that number or uh, your software might not generate it uh, in, a, in a good way to make it sort of easily guessable. So there's, there's some pitfalls there. So on the other side is uh, financial exposure to Bitcoin, right? And so when you're getting financial exposure to Bitcoin, you don't have all the benefits of like, let's say being able to cross a border with your Bitcoin in your head, you know, to memorize uh, 24 words and cross a border with, uh, with your net worth in your head. That's like one of the most amazing things about Bitcoin. Uh, uh, you don't you don't get the privacy benefits. You can't uh, transact with it. A uh, number of other things that uh, you know. In the case of a government crackdown, you 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 aren't sure you'll be able to keep your financial exposure. Uh, so so some of the ways you can get financial exposure are you know some of these like 
products. Uh, like, I mean, the, the big one is by quote unquote buying coins and storing them on an exchange. Sure. What you own at that point is an IOU. You do not own Bitcoin. You own an IOU that uh, represents Bitcoin. And if the exchange you're working with went completely insolvent tomorrow, uh, you wouldn't ever get those Bitcoins. Uh, and this would happen in Mt. Gox, for example. Right. So uh, these are people who, who had financial exposure to Bitcoin but didn't own them. Right. And a so lot of people think those exchanges are like banks, but they're not. <laughs> they're not. Yeah, they're not insured. Yeah. Well, and even banks, right? Like banks, uh, you know, they're insured up to a point, but if the banks ever go completely insolvent, you're not going to get all your money either. <laughs> You'll get yeah. 200 or whatever. The way I like to look at it is that uh, everything in life has risks. Everything has trade-offs, right? And we always have to weigh what those trade-offs and those risks are. And, you know, just like in the old days, maybe people kept cash at home and put them in the mattress or put it in the walls. But the risk with that is that, you know, your house burns down, someone steals you, robs you, whatever, or you can put it in the bank. But then the, the risk is, I mean, what if the bank doesn't give you your money? And so today, kind of the same trade off, like I can custody my own Bitcoin, um, but that, that carries risks. If I do it wrong, if I get hacked, if I lose my password, I could have someone store it for me, which probably is, does a better job of security. So the security mm -hmm. risk kind of goes away, but then there's risks that maybe they don't give me my money when I want it or they go insolvent, like you said. Yeah, you don't get all the benefits of Bitcoin if someone else, if you just have this, it's like, it's a bet that other people will find these benefits compelling, but you yourself don't get the benefits because you, you know, you're just using a third party. Yeah. So what are, what do you think are, I know you've done uh, quite an extensive review on a lot of these different hardware wallets um, and, and, and different ways to secure it. So what do you think are like the, the kind of the first steps that someone should make that are pretty good without going too overboard? So my, my point of view is that uh, like when I think back to when I first started to use these hardware wallets and, and software wallets, and I think about all the mistakes I made, one alarming thing is I was always using real money, right? Like I was, uh, I was learning how to use it with real money. And if I made a mistake, I don't think I ever made a real mistake. Uh, I, I got really close a couple of times, but uh, you know, if I would have made a mistake, I would have lost real money. And so the biggest thing I think of is that if, if you really want to commit to learning how to use this asset in a safe way, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to basically have your own Swiss bank account in your pocket, right? That's what it is. Uh, if, if you want that, then you have to commit some uh, time and energy to learning. And the best way to learn is to use Bitcoin's test network. It's called Testnet. Uh, Testnet is, you, is uh, and this is what we do in my HODL bootcamp. It's a class to teach people some of these uh, self-custody fundamentals. Uh, Testnet is a, a clone of the Bitcoin network that is intended to be used by software developers like myself when we're building applications. And so every, almost every wallet supports Testnet because the developers want to test it when they're you know, making changes. They want to test that it works without having to risk real money. Uh, but Testnet has a, is, is also very nice if you're trying to learn how to use these products because you can screw up and not lose any money which is fantastic. But all the, all the hardware wallets, all the software wallets work exactly the same whether you're using testnet or uh, the real Bitcoin network, which we call mainnet. So that's the big thing I would recommend is, is uh, you know, look at it as sort of like maybe a couple month process of, of learning and just start uh, downloading wallets and playing with them uh, using Bitcoin's testnet. And, and one of the important things I would practice doing is practice like 
practice like losing the wallet, right? So all you have is your, your, your seed words, right? We have these like 12 or 24 words that represent that secret number I was referring to earlier. Uh, you can practice like deleting the wallet and figure out how you can get those testnet Bitcoins back uh, from this words, right? So you're, so you're basically simulating a disaster, right? So you, you can sort of like simulate and uh, uh, practice going through these sort of disaster scenarios. And uh, that way, if, if you do this, you know everything that, everything that, that, that could go really wrong and you've sort of practiced how to, uh, how to recover from that and you know uh, what, what mistakes are fatal and which aren't. Uh, and you can do all this without ever risking real money. And, and maybe you get halfway through and you say, hey, this ain't for me. I'm yeah. just going to you know, leave my coins with a third party. Uh, well, but it's, I not, think it's we, not that hard. I, I think, uh, I think you know, we need to look at like, you know, I think different people need different levels of security. So, I mean, if you're trying to secure $100 with a Bitcoin, your security protocol is going to be a lot different than if you're trying to secure a million or 10 million or 100 million. And so, um, you know, maybe maybe if you're only dealing with 100 bucks or a couple hundred bucks, maybe you don't need to go through all that. Maybe just uh, putting it on a Trezor it might be might be might be good. What, putting what, it on a Trezor at that point is too expensive because that's as, as much as your coins are worth. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, I think I think uh, yeah. So that's a good point. You know, you can get started with just it's it's kind of like the idea of get off zero with. Uh, you know, we tell people we tell no coiners like get off zero at least have like a dollar worth of Bitcoin. What are, you know? Yeah. The, it's not rational to have zero dollars of Bitcoin. You should at least have like one dollar. Uh, so, and so the same way, if you own some, maybe maybe just move a couple of your coins off an exchange, a couple, you know, small percentage of your coins off an exchange and practice holding that yourself. Yeah. So do you think it's kind of like we have like hard, we have we have software wallets or hot wallets, right, that we could download from the app store and there's dozens of those probably. Then we have like a hardware wallet, which would be like a Trezor, Ledger, Cold Coin, which is an actual like a hardware like USB device that I could store yeah. it on. And that so that like maybe level one is like just downloading an app and storing it in there. I mean, there's so many today, um, some that make it super easy to send your Bitcoin, like drop it, um, you know, ones that uh, pay you back like Lolly. And then there's, you know, all kinds of uh, other ones. Do you? Do you mess around with those at all, or do you think that's just you should probably skip right past that and go right to a hardware wallet? I I I, uh, I just find desktop apps easier to use, honestly. Uh, so I, I I got started using Electrum because Electrum is quite easy to use. Uh, but I I think the idea of starting with a uh, mobile app. The one nice thing about mobile apps is you can like scan QR codes. Yeah. Uh, much easier. So like you never have to worry about typing it in wrong. You just scan the QR code and you know, you, it's a little, it's a little bit more ergonomic. So yeah, either a desktop software app or a software wallet or a mobile app are great places to start. And you know, you can just practice sending, sending back and forth. I mean like one of the other things you can sort of learn about is just like the different fees you pay. I think most people, uh, you know, after being in Bitcoin for like a year, they realize that you do, it doesn't matter if your transaction confirms and, 20 minutes or not most of the time most of the time if, if it confirms in a week you're happy uh and so you you know you learn to pay a much lower fee at a certain point you can pay you know uh yeah you, i think many of us overpay on the fees on our fees quite substantially so it's like you know just start start playing with the little dials that the software wallets uh use and i think yeah i think uh, one of the best ways to understand bitcoin is to just play around with it and try to figure out you know after your after your transaction is created you know, go and put that uh, ID into maybe blockstream.info's block explorer 
and, and go try to look at it and understand what the block explorer is telling you, you know, like it, your transactions are much more interesting than like a transaction in the abstract. So you can sort of like look at yours and try to understand what's actually going on there. And you'll see some terms you don't recognize. Google those. Uh, I think that's one of the best ways to learn about Bitcoin uh, from, from a beginner's point of view. Yeah. Now, what about um, when you're using a hardware wallet like a Trezor or Ledger, um, when you're doing those transactions, I mean, I guess you have to log on to their website, connect your wallet. And so then it's running all those transactions through their servers, right? And, and maybe the next step would then be to use those hardware wallets, but then have the transactions run through your own server. Yeah. So this is a, a tricky, uh, this is something I'm actually working on right now. Uh, so yeah, the default way is that you're using uh, apps that they make for you. And so the trade-off there is privacy. They will know every transaction you ever did. And you should probably assume that they're gonna sell that at some point uh, information because it's very valuable. Uh, you know, maybe they won't, but you should probably assume that they will. So uh, if you care about your privacy and you don't want basically uh, you don't want uh, it to be public knowledge which coins you own, <clears throat> then you'll probably want to figure out a way to connect to your own node of some sort. And the, the easiest way to do that now is using the Electrum wallet and something called Electrum Personal Server. This is, uh, uh, it's basically something that can connect Electrum to your own full node. And this is not really for non-technical users, honestly. It, it's, it, and even I don't really enjoy doing it. Uh, it's it's like a glue to, to connect these two different programs because uh, Electrum knows how to work with hardware wallets and uh, but it does it, it generally it talks to uh, third-party servers which are are probably also leaking your privacy this is one of the things the deeper you go down the rabbit hole you you, you learn about all these different places where privacy is leaked uh, that's sort of like the, a lot of the advanced usage of Bitcoin is around using it uh, without leaking your privacy. And so there's a new class of things that uh, user interfaces that will connect directly to Bitcoin Core. And I'm working on one called Junction. I hope to release it either tonight or tomorrow. Uh, I, I made like one release a week or two ago, but I'm making a desktop app. Uh, and so that would connect directly to your own full node. Uh, full node meaning like your Bitcoin Core running and it, and it uh, goes and verifies every one of the transactions so it can see what, you, what your balances are. Uh, so, so there's so a new it, class so of this these. Is like a interface that someone could use to connect to their, uh, their full node much easier. Yep. Uh, so, so it's, a, it's an interface to, to do, uh, to, it's an interface that connects hardware wallets to Bitcoin core. So you can use your hardware wallet, uh, together with Bitcoin core. And, uh, you can also use your hardware wallet in a multi-sig setup. So this is the idea with multi-sig is you can have multiple keys control your Bitcoin. So you can basically split your Bitcoin up to be controlled by, let's say, three different of these secret numbers. And you only need two of them to participate in order to move your coins. And so the beauty of this is that it, it removes a single point of failure, something you could just totally lose one of those. Uh, and you'd still be able to recover your funds as long as two of them still remain. Uh, so this is, this is the focus of my junction. Project. I had a I had a long talk with uh, Brian McDonald from uh, Casa at 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 the Bitblock Boom conference, and they offer you know multi sig two of three or three of five, and you know it's like if you have a hard enough time keeping track of one key, does having three keys just complicate things? Like now you have three points of failure. Well, I mean, yeah, there's uh, there's uh, well, you don't have three points of failure because any of them, any one of them can fail, and you're still okay. Uh, 
there, I mean, there's sort of a, yeah, there's sort of an interesting question here. Like, uh, I mean, another thing some people do is they, you know, make cop, you know, have, uh, you'll have like split your coins between five different wallets or, you know, three different wallets, let's say. And, uh, and, you know, try to treat these separately. And so the, the nice thing about that is you, if you lose one of them, yeah, you lose that whole wall, but you don't lose all your coins. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but you know, uh, so, so there's sort of a, there's sort of a debate between whether you should sort of, uh, 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 have a couple different storage strategies. Uh, none of them are perfect, but in, in, you might lose some coins, but you'll, you'll minimize the chance you lose all your coins. The other point of view is that you should really put a lot of effort uh, into one storage strategy, make it as good as you can, and put all your coins in there. Uh, and just really make sure that that doesn't fail. And that's the point of view I would tend to go with, uh, but that's maybe more because I'm an advanced user. Yeah, I uh, go with uh, option one personally. As yeah. as my as, as I've grown, I've added more hardware wallets. And I think maybe that's because um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid of either hardware failure or like hacking. So if somehow it got one got hacked or one failed, um, I only lose a fraction as opposed to all of it. Yep. Yeah. So the, the, the idea with hardware wallets, just to kind of back up a little bit is that, uh, you know, like, let's say like right now, no one's really trying to hack your Bitcoin. Because anybody who knows about Bitcoin uh, and is a, is a nasty person is probably focused on other scams, right? They're probably trying to make these, some of these uh, kind of scammy ICOs or something where they, you know, there's nothing there and they're just trying to sell you vaporware. Uh, and so that sort of a scam is beginning to go away. Uh, maybe they're doing like ransom attacks, right? Where they just shut your computer down and demand Bitcoin, stuff like that. But eventually, if Bitcoin's price goes up a lot more, uh, a lot of these easier scams are going to go away. And the, the, the only scam that remains is actually taking people's Bitcoin. And so uh, like, there's a lot of ways that like, uh, if you have a wallet on your phone or your computer, there's a lot of ways that a wallet like this could be, could be uh, compromised. Like one of the big ones is let's say a, a, a virus is installed on your desktop that is a key logger. It logs every keystroke you have. And so it waits until it sees keystrokes that uh, you know represent the password to your to your account or your your seed or something. Uh, it can just go and and steal that, and run run off and steal your coins. Uh, uh, let's like you know, there's a number of ways that uh, a a, uh, a a a program running on a desktop computer can be compromised. The reason why we like hardware wallets is that they're very simple. Uh, they're like the simplest possible computing environment that can generate, store, and uh, interact with a Bitcoin private key. And so just because so, the environment is so simple, there's like less places for ghosts to hide, so to speak, right? There's less places for a, a, a virus to pop out of the woodwork. Right. Uh, and they only communicate, they, they att attempt to only communicate with the rest of the world over a very simple channel, the USB uh, wire, or in some cases, like a micro SD card or a QR code. Uh, they attempt to only communicate over to the rest of the world over the simple interface. Uh, and it just like uh, reduces the chances that they, you know, like your normal computer is communicating with the world to the internet, maybe through your like, you know, uh, like three different ways to plug stuff into it. There's just all kinds of ways that it can connect to the external world and that a virus can get inside. So that's the big value proposition of a hardware wallet. Got it. And, and unless somebody actually takes physical control over it, it's pretty much impossible to then be hacked. Uh, 
it's not impossible. Like there are versions there, there are like people have hacked hardware wallets, uh, remotely. I, I can think of like two of them, two ver two things. Uh, like one of the scary things is if, uh, if somebody installs a, a, a virus on your desktop computer that's connected to the internet, uh, and they can send, uh, if there's some imperfection in how the USB communication works, like there have been examples where you could extract the Bitcoin seed from the device without actually having physical control of the device. Uh, but the thing is, is these are all demonstrated in the lab by researchers, and none, none of these, to my knowledge, have ever been exploited in the wild. So yeah, in general, the rule is they need physical access to the device in order to get your, your key off of it. Yeah. So, so then you feel, I mean, and you, like I said, you've done some research on this. I've seen, seen your work, but I mean, so you feel that overall, like a basic hardware wallet is probably good enough security for the average person. Um, if they, and then, and then maybe to step it up is then to start trying to figure out how to communicate with their own server. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it sort of depends what your goals are. Uh, if you really want, like some people really need, uh, you know, privacy. Uh, and so, you just like think about that's one of the big things is like how who do, do I care if everyone in the if the government or if uh, some foreign power or something or like some some like do I care if everyone knows which coins I own right that's like one of the first questions you should ask uh, and if if you if you do really care about that then you're going to need to do a lot more research because it's it's that's part's tough uh, but for the average person if if you don't really care about that. Uh, then yeah, just using a hardware wallet with Trezor's website or Ledger's uh, app uh, is pretty good. And the one caveat is just make sure you have backups of your seed. Because like most people think like when I encountered a hardware wallet, I thought, okay, I just need to keep track of this hardware wallet. And uh, you get into situations, we were talking about this earlier, where uh, you need to upgrade the software, it's called firmware, on the hardware wallet. And uh, this is scary because uh, it, if, if that goes wrong, it can destroy your private key. It can destroy your Bitcoin. So you need a backup, right? And uh, I think this is, this is one of the tough things about, uh, uh, like this is one thing that a lot of people neglect. I, I almost screwed this up the first time I, I attempted to do a hardware wallet. Just make sure you have backups. You can have like redundant copies of the backup. And also hardware wallets, you know, in a fire or something that's going to be lost. You can also explore storing these backups in something that might be a little more, you know, fire resistant paper or steel or something. Uh, but, you know, don't go too overboard. Like a lot, I think a lot of people get caught up in trying to optimize it so much that like, you know, they're, they're, that they try to find some strategy that could like survive World War III, but then they never figure it out. And so they leave their coins in something that's a lot less optimal, right? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, simplicity is the enemy of security. So you want something that's simple and that like, five years down the road, when you forget how it worked, you can still get into it and move the coins. Uh, I love that quote. Simplicity is the enemy of security. Uh, or no, no, complexity is the enemy of security. Sorry, I got that wrong. Complexity is the enemy of security. Simplicity is the, uh, the uh, ally of security. Complexity is the enemy of security because if you're <laughs> over complex, over your own skill level, you actually do yourself more harm than good. There was a talk that Andreas Antopoulos did uh, that I saw where he basically kind of said the same thing. And I said, what's, your, what's the best security protocol? And he's like, it depends on you. Like, yeah, you need to have the best one that's that's up to your technical standards. If you go over, then you put yourself in more risk. Right. So I guess that's kind of what you're and saying. that's why I like I mean, maybe I, I jumped a gun a little bit talking about this, like practicing on testnet. But that's where I really like this point of view. Like uh, and this is this is for people who aren't going to store more. But the nice thing about like playing around with some of these things without 
with either long, you know, you could also use the normal Bitcoin, but just very small amounts. But you can play around until you get to the point where you're like, okay, I, this is above my head, right? Like this is where I can't go further, right? Yeah. And and then like you can just by playing around and sort of reaching this, okay, I, I can't do much more than this uh, without help. And then you know that's where you can say, okay, well, this is my area I feel comfortable with, right? Uh, and you can do that by just like practicing playing around with small amounts and see where it starts to get a little sketchy and where you don't understand everything that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Um, I mean, I, like, like you talked about the story, I mean, I, I ran into the same problem. I plugged in a wallet and it needed a firmware update and I couldn't find the, the backup phrase because of whatever reason. And, um, it was a, it was a scary situation. Luckily I got out of it, but it's definitely like a wake up call. We were like, wow, that was a close call. I could have lost everything. I need to do better next time. And hopefully everybody can just stay out of that trouble from the first place. What you really want is some kind of a playbook, right? Like imagine, like picture yourself in five years, three years, two years, opening up your whatever, your little treasure box, right? And you, you see this like harder wallet, you forget how it even works or something. You these words, you don't know what they mean. You really want some instructions or something in there that just kind of describes how to, uh, how to, uh, what to do, you know? Problem is then um, a would-be would robber gets that and they know what to do. <laughs> that's, that's also true. Uh, so everything has these like trade-offs. I think of it, you know, I kind of think of it sometimes like in the, in the old West days or they, maybe during the gold rush, right? They would go bury their gold and they'd make a map to it, mm -hmm. right? And like the map was like their private key kind of a thing, right? Yep. Like only they had the map and like that was where the gold was. Um, and, and it's kind of like that. And it's like, well, then where do you keep that map? And then how secure is that map, right? And, and uh, it's kind of the same age-old problem that we have today a couple hundred years later. Yeah, and I mean, another way to think, another way I think about this is that like, uh, you know, if you're really bullish on Bitcoin, if you really think it's, it's going to work, there's like a number of ways you can bet on it, right? And one of them is to just buy the asset, but you know, not everyone has a lot of extra capital sitting around to buy it or to buy more than they have now. Like maybe you're maxed out. You don't want to expose yourself more financially. Well, there's other ways you can sort of bet on it too. And I think one of the best ways to bet, there's two like ways I try to help people bet on it. First, like, you know, you can learn to do programming. Uh, like these Bitcoin programming skills are going to be massively in demand if the world moves to this is our money. Uh, another way is to just learn, like slowly learn about security, right? If the world, if private keys become something that everybody sort of, uh, understands and inter interacts with these these uh, sort of operational security uh, information security skills are going to be really useful uh, and they take time to learn so you can so you can sort of view this as like an investment and it actually has a bet on Bitcoin right like if if Bitcoin does well you're going to see a significant payoff from learning this stuff yeah I mean basically just like uh, you would put your money in hoping that it's worth more in the future but like why not put your time in hoping your time is worth more in the future so exactly yeah either one is a bet on the future I like that and they're different bets yeah that's a great point that will that will wrap it up on which I think brings us right back to um, the the kind of things that you're teaching right teaching people to code teaching people to build applications so um, I'll definitely make sure that we link up to that in the show notes for anybody listening. Um, but I just love that, right? Like, yeah, you don't have to just put your money in, put your time in, put your skills in, um, and we can all work to kind of build this thing up together in, in our own unique ways. Yeah, take it slow too. You know, a lot of this stuff, it's like, you know, you look at Bitcoin as like this long-term project, right? Don't, don't be in a hurry trying to figure out how to use it, how to, you know, how to work with it. 
It's like, I think a lot of times just take your time. This is like a long project, right? We're not, it's not a race. Yeah. It's not a sprint. Cool. All right, Justin. Well, good stuff. Um, like I said, I'm going to link to that stuff down there so people can follow up on that. And I appreciate your time and uh, teaching us a little bit about security. Thanks a lot, Mark. Take it easy. Hey, if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.